Welcome to Outsider Within, Critical Conversations in Education, a podcast dedicated to those whose voices are often silenced and whose unique knowledge and resources provide insight as well as practical solutions in the field of education. We will talk with leading experts who share their own experiences and expertise in navigating critical issues using their unique perspective. On today's episode of The Outsider Within, our guest is Dr. Shirley Steinberg. Shirley is an educator, author, activist, filmmaker, and public speaker whose work focuses on critical pedagogy, transformative leadership, social justice, and cultural studies. Shirley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, three brilliant women. Thank you. So our first question is, could you tell us and our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work? That's a hard one. Um, Myself, I'm still angry and I'm dealing with the anger I have in uh, understanding the situations we find ourselves in as educators. This is a difficult time. We're seeing psychotic, moronic politicians change our lives. Our children and youth are being dealt with because of political decisions. And in my opinion, politics has no place in academic and educational circles. My anger kind of describes me. I'd like to say I'm mellow and chill and I I don't mind, but I really do mind and I care. Sometimes I care too much, but I have in my days learned to moderate my anger and to channel it to my teaching and uh, to my scholarship. I do know where I can't say these things, so I just make a point of not going there. I'm an angry academic who's trying to chill out. Could you talk to us a little bit about, um, I know you said politics don't necessarily belong in education, but in which way do you see the current social and political climate impacting education, both, and we'll say broadly, in in the United States and Canada, or just in general? Well, honestly, United States and Canada are really different, so it's hard to compare them. We get echo, a little tiny whispers in Canada since I left the United States. But the United States does not have little whispers anymore. They're shouts. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified for the thought that anybody would consider changing an academic curriculum, let alone one that has to do with inclusion and exclusion and minoritizing. And if anything's impacted me in the last month, it's been the absurdity coming from Florida. But that shows us that that can happen. And I can't help as a Jewish woman, take it back to maybe, is this really 1933 and our people starting to walk in and stop students in classes and start creating ways of, of, of noting that fascism is the way that the next ideology should be. I mean, I don't see a lot of difference now. I don't. I, I see that the Congress is imploded into psych, uh, just a psychological, sociological, and cultural bomb. And I see that the Senate is hang on at a thread, and I don't have any faith whatsoever in the uh, administration and the way that that things are being handled. And this is not a political statement. This is just a sociocultural statement. So it's hard to talk about impact at all without really accepting and understanding that it's our kids that are going to be impacted. And if you don't mind me going uh, riffing on a little historical moment, Ronald Reagan 
is one of the the most important figures in the world in the 20th century. And the way he changed education in about 1993 with his uh, Committee on Excellence that wrote a, a huge report that basically said teachers are what's wrong with education, bringing in this garbage standards of should and shouldn't be taught has created the the ultimate dumbing down of American kids. That's 30 over 30 years ago. So we have two generations of kids that have been destroyed by the so-called report on excellence that Reagan brought in. So we see a trail of non-academics changing how policy and kids would be treated. Now, you know, the idea that politics has no right. I mean, I'm certainly glad Lyndon Johnson signed civil rights laws in the 60s. And he also talked about, I mean, and in during Brown v. Board, which is in 54, uh, there was an attempt at politics to change. But of course, Brown v. Board took at least 10 years to ever even sort of be implied. And I would say that we even now still have the same problems we had in 1954. But it's it's just extraordinary to be a person in, in teaching and, and just all we want to do is teach and teach kids good stuff and to have this poured down our throats. And then the news media create uh, people that want kids to know everything and be, be empowered and to be smart, that they're being strangled and smothered is very scary. It seems like you've got a good handle on what's happening here in the States. Much to my chagrin, more people in the United States are unaware of the things that you articulated. You said they're kind of whispering in Canada, but they're shouting here in the States. So I was wondering if you could give us some of your insights about what, what are they whispering about? I am situated at this point in Alberta, which is right above, well, it's Montana North. And it is Montana North in every way, culturally, ideologically. So we have more probably F-150 trucks than anywhere else in the world. We have a, a very right-wing Christian fundamentalist way of seeing the world. That has grown within the last 10 years. We actually have what we have not as a governor, but a premier who is a member of the Christian party. Never did we ever think that the word Christian would be in a political party's name. And we now have that. We are like a little, well, very large, very rich oil and gas filled province that has become very much moving to the right. Education has been messed with a bit just because of the of the virus and finances going down. So funding is less. But the implication that any of these politicians would enter our school system as a politician has not happened. And many of you might be aware of the tension that has been in Quebec for many, many years. It's a linguistic and cultural tension because it uh, it is a French province. Even as radical as the Quebec politics are, education has not, there's not this, like the notion of cancel culture, and it does exist. It's just kind of uh, amusing for Canadians. I think a lot of it happens because we're, it's a parliamentary system. 
And in a parliamentary system, cannot get the bifurcation that you do in a two-party system in the United States. We never have two parties. There's always at least three or four. One is usually a socialist party, one is a radical right party, and the other two are somewhere in the middle. So there's a lot more voices in in that situation. We also don't elect presidents. We have prime ministers chosen from the parliament. There's not a six-year run for office. It happens about six weeks before. And so the way of um, creating a hero or an anti-hero as people that are going to run is is very, very different. We also, um, I would say that female and minority presence in politics has always been more in Canada. And when I listen to things, honestly, when I listen to things in the United States, I really hear that things haven't changed. It's like the concept of president is a white male. The Congress, the Senate is, is white male. And even though we have our blips, We'll have a Nancy Pelosi here or there. We'll, we'll have some people. But in reality, it is a patriarchal state that has never changed since the day the Constitution was created. This idea is who is a person? What is a person? What are the rights of people? I mean, this, this thing, this Constitution was written by slave owners. And how far have we moved from that? An amendment here, an amendment there. I believe that the American Constitution is faulty in so many ways that I don't see how much progress can be made. So that's my view. Also, we have 2,000 feet of snow out front. So my my attitudes about climate change are also put in there, too. <laughs> so, Shirley, how do you then, with all of what's going on, see your work speaking back to educational challenges faced by historically resilient people? Um, I'm thinking especially of your work with Indigenous groups in Canada. And would you consider yourself an activist? Um, I'm a verbal activist and a literary activist. Yes, I do go to marches and I speak, but it becomes scary after a while. And my kids and grandkids don't need me getting shot somewhere just because of my mouth. So I am much more careful. That's kind of a two-part thing. I'll I'll address the Indigenous work. But first, I want to just, I believe that if there's one thing I can do as an educator is to just, how can we reinstall history and philosophy and sociology back into our classes? And I'm not just talking about the erasure that they're trying to do in Florida. I'm talking about, first of all, as I talked about, the trickle down from from Reagan has been horrendous. So our kids are back to this old-fashioned education of dates and times and memorization, rote learning. And so the courses, like I, I went to high school in, in California, and we had courses called literature and philosophy. We we actually talked about those things. And when you don't understand history, I mean, really understand it, not know the dates, um, <laughs> teach right, it is bent to, to repeat itself. But more importantly, it's we are not creating thinkers from our kids that are worth making a difference. And, you know, this kind of weirdness about the president and the idea that they run someone for president because he's kind of the only one around. Are you telling me that in 400 million Americans, we can't find some smart, informed, humanist 
educated advocates. It's just shocking. It's shocking the kind of lack of quality of anybody. And it's almost like the president now is going to run again because there isn't anyone else. And I just find that kind of shocking and tragic. As far as looking at dealing with identity, we have so many identities and so many ways to designate people. How does that not just tell us that we have so many different people to serve? It's just so, so sad. So when I look at working with indigenous who, who indigenous people in Canada are called First Nations because they created um, a few years ago a reconciliation need which was much more than a treaty, but it was a, a document that was created to acknowledge what had happened in, in the history of First Nations people. Now, First Nations um, changes because, first of all, all Indigenous people are not just one glump. They're people from the Arctic. They're people from different places. And so each area is a nation. So we call them First Nations. And a lot of this was taken from some of the work that was done in New Zealand with people who were Indigenous. But the work is not really work. It's my joy and my engagement to, to be with First Nations people, to see alternative ways of being. And that their schools, the schools that I'm able to go to, have started to achieve a parallel curriculum in which First Nations curriculum is taught alongside the expected Canadian. And so it's really cool to go in and see a high school kid talk about the differences of what they see as a Blackfoot person or a Cree person or what the dominant culture of Canada sees. Working with Indigenous has kind of grounded me in understanding health, medicine, alternative ways of being, spirituality, understanding how how some things are more important to people than than I would see in the dominant culture of Canada. But on the other side, I can sometimes think of a week, one week, that the area I work with has had eight suicides, that the fentanyl is so, it's like toothpaste in a lot of places, and it's not understood. And that dear, dear people that I love and know have no ability to make a difference with their children or grandchildren or friends, that it just happens. It's, it's almost like I kind of imagine the Black Death was many years ago when people were falling with what they called the plague. And it's like you walk out and you say hi to your neighbor. The next day, there's a wagon coming to get their body. And that's kind of how I feel. I don't know what can be done. Well, I know that the government could, along with what we call reserves, the reservations could create some sort of way of policing these drugs. I don't know how, though. How do you police things that are in your pocket without creating a police state? It's terrifying. So that's kind of my worry, my things that are in my mind right now about First Nations. I'm not an American or Canadian historical scholar, but I do know that countries allow what they allow and this goes back to poor old florida and the and the the drug and narco situation bringing in cocaine in the 80s and 90s but what i saw the fbi do was close eyes to seeing the cocaine and heroin epidemic that we're always in marginalized non-white areas 
And why is that happening in Canada in a different but very same way? Where are the people stopping fentanyl from getting into First Nations reservations? And I don't understand it. I get it, but I don't get it. And it's just horrendously tragic. So in what you're saying, in many ways, it is a either tacit or implicit genocide when people of a dominant culture of the government look away from abuse and the the damage that drugs or, or violence are causing to other groups. So is there a role, do you think, for people who who want to be, I, I stray away from the word ally, because I think that is taken up too much and self-appointed as opposed to given by other groups, but for, let's just say, abolitionists or people who want to be activists for communities, where do you see the role of white people or dominant culture individuals helping or assisting or facilitating or advocating? Where, where do you see that balance between, you know, going in with a Lady Bountiful approach or just how does it work in a way that's the most equitable and the most ethical to be a white person working in spaces of color or poverty or First Nations? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not a Christian, but I do know that Jesus talked about righteous indignation. And I think every color and every creed and every gender should be just freaking angry about most of the stuff that's going on. I think there needs to be encouragement for for justifiable anger. And that we, yeah, I agree. I think that word ally is it just annoys me. I think that we need to be supportive of being angry about what is wrong. So when we see a fentanyl death, or we see a heroin overdose, or we see yet another shooting in certain areas of town, that there should be real anger about that. And it's righteous. I mean, Martin Luther King talked about that, that idea of the ability of the masses to be just bloody anger. And I'm not seeing it. I mean, in the United States with the the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I mean, I don't understand why you can't, you should, Americans should not be able to drive down their streets for all the women that should be camped out and angry. And I don't understand this. I don't understand. And can we blame it on COVID? Do we blame it on just passive lack of interest? But why are we not angry? I mean, that's not about promoting abortion. It's just about promoting women's rights. And if we are going to be so passive with what happened there, I don't understand what's going to happen next. That tells me that anything can happen. Because ironically, the target is not women of poverty or women of color. Those rights were more for the middle class white women that wanted to have that luxury of making a choice. So what if we can't have those people advocating? I mean, I'm old enough to remember the streets being full of people. And I'm from L.A., so I saw it because I live very close to Watts and the riots. I've seen righteous indignation, and I don't understand that. What do you think is accounting then for the apathy? I mean, because it just seems like there's just a great deal of, of apathy. I think it's tragic. It breaks my heart. But I know when I see the faces of the students I teach and the professors that I meet, I know there's no apathy there. In where I live, we had these psychos driving their trucks, blocking our border, humiliating and threatening people where on the way where I live. And they managed to do it. But we can't have 
brain-holding, intellectually inspired people who know what's going on out there, what is going on? The Vietnam War would not have been stopped if it was not for protest. If it was not for Dr. King's protests, we would still be, we're not that far from where we were, but we would still be in the incredible lifetime of lynching and beatings and annihilation. When George Floyd died, when he died, when George Floyd was murdered, I thought that that would be a stepping stone to righteous indignation. But it happens constantly. I remember pre-Roe. And I think that there has been a concerted effort to miseducate people. I remember watching the news the day when Roe fell. And I saw so many young women out there saying, yay, pro-life, pro-life. Well, they're not pro-life. They're just pro-birth. They have not reached that point in their maturity where they understand what they have done. And the men that rule our country, they're just celebrating in the streets. And I think they think that they're going to have more white babies and that they're going to not, you know, be overrun by black and brown and indigenous people. But honestly, it's the majority women who voted and made decisions and supported those justices to be appointed for those rights to be repealed. And they just don't know what they have done yet. And once they mature a little more, I think that they may become more angered when their daughters need health care and there's no health care for them. But I think it's all connected with the miseducation that's happening in our country. Yeah, but reminds me of, of, of Malcolm X, the chickens come home to roost. Oh, that's well said. I do not understand how any woman or baby of 14 or 13 years old should have her body stolen. And I understand. I mean, most of my friends, I'm pro-life. I'm, I'm not pro-death. I'm pro-life and I'm pro-life for the ones that are alive. I'm so afraid that we've gone too far. I don't know how we can retrieve this. So that's why, please don't any of you brilliant women ask me how, because I don't know. I feel like, the, I think the chickens are gone. I really think, I think Kayla's right. I remember walking with a lady in my neighborhood in Virginia, and she was telling me how she was all in for Trump. And I was like, how could you? And she says, because he's going to overturn Roe. And I said, but why would you want to overturn Roe? I just couldn't understand it. She kept talking about her Christian faith meant she had to be pro-life. I was like, but what happens to all the babies who are born and they don't have care? What would you have people do if they cannot afford to care for their babies? And that's so logical. She said, well, the Lord will provide that's a whole nother conversation talking about that title people assign to themselves as Christian and how they can pick and choose when they want to be Christian and when they don't want to be Christian. We never use the word Christian as kids. If people went to church, they went to church. They didn't say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Catholic, but you didn't really say that much. 
and this is when Reagan's, that's why he's so important, started the badge. Like, I'm going to wear this badge on me. And it's just such an odd construct. And in this country that was supposedly created as separation of church and state. But all you have to do is look at the money and uh, listen to the Pledge of Allegiance and see that it has always been, I mean, that's, if I want to say a positive thing, the United States has never changed for 400 years. It's exactly the same. They stuck to what they wanted, white men, Christians, and forget everybody else. I can't help but laugh and guffaw whenever I hear that we are the greatest nation on earth. Now, African Americans aren't allowed to teach or be taught that we had something that enslaved human beings and had them murdered and lynched. That's illegal now. We can't talk about it because the precious people that might be four generations or 10 generations associated feelings could be hurt. What is going on here? In Texas, they want social studies teachers to teach that slavery was a relationship. (laughs) They can't really get into how the Black people felt about it because that's not really history. That's something different. But the history is that there were slaves and there was a relationship. Things that are going on in in Florida and in Texas, it's nothing new. Like there's always been systems at play. COINTELPRO, for instance. Um, so the system has already always been in, in play, but now it's just so bold and in your face. It's capitalist. And that's the difference. And when we talk about the former president before this one, he was supposedly a successful capitalist. And when we really give in, and I don't want to sound like a raging Marxist, but the reality is when your entire economic and political system is run because of money and corporate interests, I don't know how we can make a difference. I don't even know if our rage can ever be angry enough. Like I say, there is no solution until there gets to be some kind of way to understand what is going on. But you, we've got to threaten capitalism. That's the point. We have to threaten tourism. We have to fr- threaten manufacturing. And that's that idea of how can we threaten large corporations? How could we say we won't do this anymore? The old network, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. How can that come out of our mouths? Does it need to come out of our mouths or do we need to help our kids become the next wave of speakers? I know that every other week I go to school board meetings and I see 25 young people get up and speak truth to power to a school board eloquently, with fire, with passion, and they're speaking against policies that directly impact their lives and in some cases might end their lives. So that gives me hope. That gives me hope to see people who, they're, they're not critical scholars, but they believe in a cause and they get up and they, they speak their truth. What gives you hope? The hope is in not in our generation, which is why I don't think we need a president, our generation, uh, my generation. I think we need youth. And what has happened to our respect and love and adoration of youth and young people? You go to most any other country in the world, and the country can be upside down, politically a mess, but they love their children and their youth, and they're such a pride. We don't have that anymore. 
We don't have that. And I don't think we've had it for a long time. It's so important to raise youth with not a pride of being an American. We've got to get rid of this arrogance that we're so freaking great because we're not. We've got to say have pride in yourself as your identity, as who you believe you are. And what is it you can do to work with people like you to encourage the next generation to be as secure? And what I don't see, and this is weird, I mean, I feel like it's 1965 again, I don't see females or those who identify as females having that feeling of security and respect. I really see a very gendered kind of notion in a non-gendered predicted society, but I do not see that. And when I talk to my students about um, Bordeaux, I love Bordeaux's stuff on on dominant culture, because of, you name the dominant culture of the country, not by, by majority, but by what controls the country. And our dominant culture in the United States of America has never changed since 1776. It is white. It is Protestant. It is male. It is English speaking, and it is middle class. And that is the American culture. And no one else in any other race, class, or gender has any ability to create power. And that takes me to the probably the third thing, along with history and philosophy. We must teach our kids what power is. And I would say we go to Gramsci, we go to the notion of hegemony, we teach what consent is like, and we teach our kids to not consent. Do not always be consensual. Fight the consent of the people and start to understand how power works. That's not even in social studies. It's not even taught. It's not even discussed. Where are we with our kids? Even when our 15-year-old goes to apply for a job at some fast food place, we say, now you need to know how to work with a boss. You need to understand you might comply with them, but in your head, you make clear that you understand that you are not that complying person. Like we play the game to pay our bills, but we do not become part of the game players. I think that's part of it. I think that's part of hegemony, like that. that's part of the power is not giving our kids the language to speak about this stuff or not giving them the skills to be critical and to interrogate things. It makes me think of of Carolyn Anderson's book, White Rage. That's a real thing. Like she wrote a whole book and showed how the progression of Anytime this black or brown movement happened or um, someone was making progress or gain, white rage came around and this is how it manifests. And so it's generational. And again, a lot of younger people don't have a voice. They give me hope because they don't mind protesting. They don't mind using their voice. They don't mind speaking up, but they don't know how to use the voice to really effect change. They don't mind being voiceful, but they do need to be nurtured. They need to be taught and they need to really be critical of the system. And that language needs to be happening within some of these classes. And it's not. 
I agree. And I think it's about listening to like when the president before Biden was the epitome of the white male that we all talk about, and that he had no interest in any disenfranchisement or marginalization, and that he was an absolute corporate person who saw that the way to create a world was to manage it. And as we see now in education, like, you know, there's faculties of education, even and faculties and universities are hiring now managers. We're not hiring deans. We're not hiring department chairs. We have managers. So we're going back to a pre-Frederick Taylor model of factory management. And that's how now our faculties of education are being managed. And a lot of this came from that particular person. And I don't know what to say, because if you were asking me, who would I say we need to run for president in the United States? I would absolutely say, can't be a woman, can't be queer, and can't be black. We need a white Christian that looks exactly like the people we know, who's kind of like a Trojan horse, who's inside absolutely angry and wants to change. But I do not believe that with any person of color or woman or non-binary human being that we can possibly get out of this mess until we get someone who kind of replicates what they should, but is is kind of like an, an undercover agent for goodness and humanity. And they also have to have money, which is problematic because anybody with money has probably got that disease that our one percenters have. And that's really sad. And I I mean, I there have been strides and the great people that have, have done it, but not enough. And when we can't even now make a decision that we can't control our own bodies, you have heard about the tracking of your period. Have you heard about that? There are apps that people have been using to track their periods and women stopped using them because they were afraid that government would start grabbing that data and find out about it. But then there's like middle school girls who they're trying to make policy that they have to report their periods. We're going to draw the line right there. But is that when they come against us as parents and say that we've interceded into the federal, you know, I mean, we don't know where it stops now. I mean, as a Canadian, I just think, come on, ladies, just drive across the border. But I think they're going to start looking at who crosses the border. If that doesn't get mothers up in arms, it's not something that most middle school girls even want to talk about with an adult who's not their mother I just don't even know how that would even work. I think that's where we have a window to use how they're using parental rights to restrict schools. We could use parental rights, quote unquote, to create spaces where our kids are not having to do that, right? So if we can say parents have the right to dictate what books are in the library, then we can certainly say it's a parental right to not report out on our child's personal reproductive health. We've covered so many topics today. I think we will close out this wonderful episode of The Outsider with Anne. And thank you so much to Dr. Shirley Steinberg for being our guest tonight. We really do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's just so nice to talk to brilliant women. I love it. Thank you for listening to The Outsider Within podcast. We, the producers, are university teacher educators, and we know how hard teachers, administrators, and others who support public education work towards access and equity. 
We welcome your thoughts, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. Find us at criticalissuesineducation.com and be sure to follow us on social media. Yours in solidarity.